just so you're not alarmed, Carrie, that little flashing red dot by your name, I just am recording it to the cloud now. But it's not live yet on Facebook, so don't worry. Okay. <laughs> yeah. you'll, you'll, you should see. Uh, I'll, I'll just let you know when I press, um, when I toggle on Facebook and YouTube, because, because it says live on custom streaming service right now. But it won't yeah. be actually live until I tell Restream to send it to Facebook. So I will let you know. The graphic looks a little bit like a Friday gone wrong. <laughs> the recording cloud. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think we had 37 registrations total for this wow. session. Yeah. Mostly temple members? As far as I know, yeah. Has the, um, the taste of Judaism, is that like drawn people from all over the place? Yeah, it's like, I mean, we have like a woman from Whitehorse and we have people from Chicago and Toronto. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's mostly Lower Mainland, but um, there's definitely people like a, a good number of people from the Sunshine Coast and the island who like could would never have made it in person. Um, so I feel like in some ways it's well suited to an online course, but that's cool. Hard to teach. Yeah, when you have like crickets on the other side. <laughs> um, I feel like I just ramble and ramble and ramble, but I don't know. People like the feedback has been good. I'll get. I'll do a more formal survey after tonight as the last one. Um, but it's uh, yeah, you just kind of see all these faces looking at you like. Yeah. And then it's like, do I type a question? Like, you don't want to enter, like, can they ask questions in person or is it? Yeah, they can, they can stop and ask questions. Some, like a lot are using the chat. Um, some are, you know, kind of unmuting and asking questions, which is fine. Um, it was really funny though, like the last class, I was really, um, like I was at dinner, you know, just like an hour before I was kind of bummed. I was like, you know, I really like this second class because I give them a tour of the sanctuary and we look at the Torah and it's really interesting for them. And Greg was like, we have a Torah in our house right now. <laughs> so you can, I was like, oh, <laughs> so I ended up doing like the ultimate show and tell on Zoom. And it was really fun. That's cool. <laughs> What time did you ask Michael to be on? Uh, we asked him to come just before two, so hopefully, because we did a full run through yesterday. Yeah. So he, he knows the steps to get his screen shared and everything. Great. 
got people joining us, I see. Mm -hmm. Everyone that's uh, joining us as an attendee, we're just getting set up. Um, we will begin the presentation shortly after two. Uh, but in the meantime, please bear with us as we uh, get everything rolling. Hello. Hello. Hi, Michael. Yeah. Hi. Thanks so much for being here. How are you guys? Great. That's good. Okay. I'm just gonna fiddle around here. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So it's um the link is live right now, so people are just joining us. Um, but we won't okay. start until you're fully set up and ready to go. So don't worry. And the clock starts. Okay. <laughs> I'm just deleting or closing all the confidential things on my um, background in case I accidentally, <laughs> accidentally open it up. That's best practice, definitely. <laughs> okay, I'll be right back. Thanks.
So I got lucky and my, uh, my uh, mother-in-law took my kids uh, overnight last night. I was a little bit, uh, little bit worried I was going to have the kids here. My wife's working today. Uh, and so they, they, they're four and two and they do nap roughly around now, but uh, you never really know. Sometimes I can hear them <laughs> yelling and screaming. So it, 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 yeah, we, we may have had visitors for our uh, presentation today. Okay, we like little visitors. On my screen. Okay, I can see we have 14 people already logged in. Hello to everyone. Um, we're just getting set up. Uh, so we'll start everything in the next few minutes here. We're just waiting for the rest of our attendees to join. Um, in the meantime, Get ready with your pen and paper. <laughs> I hope everybody's managing okay through these tricky times. So I, um, I guess as we're kind of just waiting for people to to uh, to join in, I'll I'll just start talking. Um, so this right now is is the life of a, a wills, estates, and trust lawyer. Uh, behind me, I, I'm in my uh, in my kitchen, and uh, been working from home for the last two months, and and. Uh, um, our entire office has actually gone remote. So there's 250 people in our office in total. And I think there's only three people that actually work in the office. So everybody's remote. It's, uh, it's been an interesting time. And I, I know, of course, that uh, you know, most other companies are doing the same thing. And in particular, in working in wills, estates and trusts, which is my area of practice, uh, it's been uh, pretty interesting uh, working with clients and trying to get uh, people uh, set up for their estate plans and I also do a little bit of real estate but I've had some interesting meetings with people our office is closed for meetings so we actually can't do meetings in office and and uh, so we end up doing I've had a, a number of clients come to my house and and sign in, in my front yard uh, you know just as with social distancing done as best possible I've, I've had signups on the hood of my car um, in other people's backyards so it's uh, it's it's very interesting we're all adjusting uh, as best we can, most certainly. Um, okay, so I think we're ready to go live now. Got the uh, go-to from Mariel. You're muted, Nicole. There we go. Uh, yeah, so it's looking good. We've got 23 attendees so far. We're expecting more. So when they, they'll just join in when they join in. And uh, yeah. Um, I want to encourage everyone who has questions um, as the uh, seminar goes on to use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen um, so you can submit um, questions there and we'll ferry them to either uh, Michael or Rabbi Brown, whoever is more appropriate. And uh, yeah, enjoy. Excellent. Thank you so much uh, to Nicole and, and to Mariel behind the scenes for organizing our webinar today. I want to welcome all of you uh, from, uh, from Temple Shalom from near and far to, uh, to our topic today, which is on uh, wills and estates. And we're very, very 
Uh, grateful to you, Michael, for joining us to offer uh, some expertise on some uh, some of these important issues and things that we uh, we should all be thinking about. Um, I'm going to start with a little bit of, of introduction and, and Jewish context, and then uh, I will uh, introduce Michael and invite him to share his, his presentation with us. Um, so I know that uh, we couldn't say wills and estates and all of these things, what does this have to do with, uh, with Judaism besides uh, that we want to, uh, to, you know, we have so many Jewish lawyers, but that's a whole other topic. But uh, really, this issue of thinking about um, our legacy, our future, what we are, uh, how we are bequeathing um, our, our values and also our assets to the next generation is one that uh, we've thought about as a people for a very long time. There's a lot just in Jewish law and the Talmud about uh, all the intricacies of of um, of how we do this. But um, what I want to just focus on in my introduction is the concept um, that I think is very, very moving within Judaism of not only creating uh, directives from a legal standpoint, but also from an ethical standpoint. We have a tradition in Judaism of creating what we call an ethical will um, that uh, is really very ancient. I mean, we see it a little bit uh, in Torah from Jacob giving um, words of blessing to his children before he dies. Um, but we really have these beautiful letters that were written. Uh, we really see them starting in the Middle Ages of not just uh, rabbis, but everyone creating these documents of uh, their values that they wanted to make sure that their children and grandchildren would be able to inherit, to know what mattered to them, to understand uh, their wishes about how they they pray that they will live. And um, there's actually a lot of beautiful um, guidance out there right now of how to create an ethical will and uh, even using some technology, recordings, videos, etc. So if you're interested in learning more about that, please uh, send me an email. I'd love to talk to you more about it. But for right now, we're here to learn about uh, more of the talkless, more of the details uh, from Michael, uh, especially in this time um, of, of COVID. I know a lot of people are thinking a lot about um, making sure their affairs are in order um, and wanting to um, just uh, discuss and, and uh, try and think about um, what they need to do to get things in place. So uh, again, Michael Scott, welcome. Um, Michael is a, a wills and estates lawyer um, and uh, we're just really, really grateful uh, that you're here with us and I'll uh, hand it over to you to, uh, to share your presentation. Again, if you do have any questions, uh, you can put them into the Q&A uh, so that we can ask Michael. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Brown. Um, and thank you, Nicole Harris and, and the Temple Shalom team for inviting me to, to speak to you all. Um, I put on a dress shirt for you today. So I, I can't say that I've been wearing one very often in the last couple of months. Um, full disclosure, I'm wearing sweatpants, but uh, but that's okay because this is a, a webinar. Uh, so um, so I uh, guess I'm a wills, estates, and trust lawyer. Uh, my Just a little bit of background on me. My uh, I work with a, a firm at downtown Vancouver called Clark Wilson. Um, it's a full service firm, but we've got a, an estates and trust group of about 15 lawyers, um, some of which work in, in the on the solicitor side, which is doing the estate planning and estate administration and trust and tax planning. And uh, some work in the estate litigation side, which is more focused on you know, where there are problems and, and uh, finding ways to resolve those problems. 
So I am going to, I'm not the most tech savvy, but I'm gonna to try to share my slides here if I can do this properly. I think this is it. Okay, I think I've got this right. I hope everybody can hear me okay. It looks good, Michael. So here it is, the essentials for an effective estate plan. Uh, so with that, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about wills, powers of attorney, and rep representation agreements. Um, I will talk to you about uh, probate and probate planning or different planning opportunities to get around probate. Uh, and, uh, and, I'll, and, and through that, I'll talk a little bit about trusts and, and um, you know, tax planning and how that kind of comes into play uh, for estates. There are some pictures in my slides. So uh, I'm sure that everybody here has their wills done. And if they don't, then they should consider um, having their wills done. Uh, and, and for those who do have their wills done, it, it would be uh, wise to, to review them from time to time. And generally every three to five years, it's good just to have a look. It may be that you don't need to do anything, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's good to just check to, to make sure that the, the person that you've got named as executor is the appropriate person to act. And, and your, your beneficial uh, distributions are all the way that you want it to be. And, and uh, yeah. Now, if, if someone dies without a will, uh, then what happens is uh, the Wills, Estates and Succession Act in BC kicks in and, and, and determines how your estate is divided. And, um, and there's kind of a, a next of kin order to it, which uh, for the most part goes to spouse and then to kids and then to parents and, and grandparents and grandkids, siblings, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, and in addition to that, somebody needs to deal with your estate. And so somebody needs to, to step up and apply to the court to, uh, to get the proper authority to, to deal with the estate. So it can be a little bit of, of a difficult process. In addition to, to making sure you've got your own wills in place, it's also good to ensure that if you have kids and, and they have kids of their own, that they're doing their own planning. If they've got young kids, uh, then they should be appointing guardians in their wills um, and they should also be establishing trusts within their wills to ensure that um, there, there is a, a vehicle to, to maintain the um, inheritance to their kids until they come of age. So talking about wills, um, one of the first things that uh, we, we look at with clients is who, who is the appropriate person to act as executor, is there someone that you have that would be appropriate to, to manage the estate, to, to be the one to collect the assets, to apply for probate, uh, pay out all your taxes and debts and, and deal with the distributions the way that you've got it set up in your will? So those are the, the responsibilities that an executor has. It's a big job, so it can take uh, a couple of years to, to administer an estate if it's straightforward and, and oftentimes it will take uh, longer than that. If there are you know difficult assets to deal with, or if there's litigation, uh, then uh, yeah, certainly it drags out the the process. Uh, so for executors, uh, I do get the question: you know, Is it appropriate to have a beneficiary also act as executor? And and the answer is it really just depends on the circumstances. So if if it's in situations where uh, you know your your beneficiaries don't get along, and if you have one of them named as executor, then the others may you know, not like that and it can cause problems. And uh, so, uh, so sometimes in those situations, people like to appoint someone that's independent 
but if everybody gets along well and you've got someone that's appropriate to act and they're also a beneficiary, then that can be fine. And it's, it's very, very normal <clears throat> for a, a beneficiary to also act as executor and, and carry out the estate. It's also important that the executor be a, a resident within, at least within Canada. Uh, so the, the residency of an estate for tax purposes is primarily based on the residency of the executor. So it's really based on where the control is really taking place and, and the executor is the one that has control. And so if the executor lives in the States, for example, then, uh, then your estate has, has become a non-resident estate for tax purposes. Uh, so in, in Canada. And uh, so it doesn't necessarily mean that there are more taxes that are owing. It just means that there are more reporting obligations that the executor needs to undergo and withholdings in dealing with the estate. So it can add costs just through accounting fees and, and, and dealing with things. So ideally, an executor is a resident you know, where, where you are a resident, so where, where the assets are, uh, but, uh, but at, at very least, a resident within Canada. I mean, there are circumstances where the the, uh, the person that's most appropriate to act is not in Canada and, and that's fine. They can certainly, I've acted for executors that lived outside of Canada and, and we just, we deal with the, the non-resident reporting and that's okay if they're really the best person to act. But, um, but if there is someone uh, that's available to act in, in Canada, then that would be ideal. So because it's a big job acting as an executor, an, an executor is entitled to take a fee. So they can claim up to a maximum of 5% of the of the gross value of the estate as a fee. And so that's uh, what the, our legislation in, in BC says. Now, uh, the way that the courts have interpreted that is to say that the 5% is really a maximum figure. So if the estate is very complex, the executor has to put a, has had to put a lot of time and effort into the administration. Uh, they've been very diligent and skillful in terms of uh, carrying out their their duties then perhaps they'd be entitled to that higher fee. But otherwise, it's a, really a scale that goes down from there. So if, if the estate is more straightforward and doesn't take a lot of time to administer, then, um, then it could be more in the 2% to 3% range that an executor could claim. An executor could also claim nothing. So if they're also a beneficiary, and, uh, then, then they may claim nothing. And it's something that gets done through the process. So at, at some stage, the executor will have access or, or control of all the assets and they'll, they'll be in a position where they're ready to make distributions from the estate. And, uh, and at that time, they'll prepare an accounting, a report to show the beneficiaries, here are all the assets I've received, and here are all the expenses I've paid, all the taxes I've paid, here's a reserve of funds that I'm gonna hold to pay any further taxes and expenses as we go along, and, and which leaves this balance that I'll, I'll make for, uh, I'm prepared to make for interim distributions. And here's what I'd like to claim as a, as a fee. And uh, if the beneficiaries get a chance to review that and consider if, they, if they'll consent to it, um, or if they, if they do not consent to it. So there are checks and balances, an executor can't just take a fee, uh, they have to run it through the beneficiaries. And if there's a disagreement, then it turns into a negotiation. Uh, to, to, to kind of come to a happy medium for everybody. And if, if they can't agree, then the executor, if the executor feels very strongly about the, the, the claim that they're making for a fee, then the executor can apply to the court to have a registrar at the court review his or her um, executor remuneration claim and, and have the, the court um, give approval of it. So in addition to the 5% uh, or that, that kind of one-time one fee, there's also an annual management fee that an executor can claim. And so that more comes into play where there are ongoing trusts established within the will. So if there, if there are reasons 
why the executor needs to continue to hold the estate for a period of time, then they can claim an annual fee of up to 0.4% on the average value of the assets every year for dealing with the management of, of those assets um, and on an ongoing basis. So every time that I'm meeting with clients to, uh, to run through estate planning, we're also reviewing their, their tax planning and, and making sure that, there's a, uh, that, that, uh, that their estate plan is going to blend well and, and be efficient from a tax perspective. So the, the primary taxes that we look at are uh, so on, on the, the top of my slide there mentions the deemed disposition on death and capital gains. So, so how it works in Canada, uh, when someone in Canada dies, it's deemed as if they've disposed of all of their assets as immediately prior to death. And so that disposition triggers uh, or uh, any unrealized gains on, on assets and, and that gain is then reported on uh, that person's terminal tax return, which the executor would file and, uh, and the, the relevant taxes would be paid. So capital gains, it ends up being about 25% of the growth. So the, an example would be if, if someone had a, a recreational property that they've had for years and, and it was worth 500 grand when they received it. And then when they died, um, it was worth a million bucks and there's 500 grand in, in growth. And so about 25% of that would be taxable on, on death, which would be about 125 grand. So that's capital gains. Uh, yeah. Can I ask just a question that came up in our Q&A back to the uh, executors um, was about um, if, do you recommend that executors take a fee? How does that work in, in your experience? Um, is it beneficial to, to the estate or to the individuals? Um, so I have actually recommended an executor take a fee, but it's, it's not, it's something that, um, as the kind of professional advisor, when I'm acting for executors, uh, it's, it's something that I, I, I at least raise with them to say, look, you're entitled to a fee. And, and here's kind of my assessment of what I think you'd be entitled to claim based on the, the complexity of the estate and all the time spent. And uh, some people decide to, to take a fee and some don't. And so it's really up to the person acting as executor to determine if they, if they want to take a fee. Now on the, so that's on the, when, when, when acting or when involved in a, an actual administration, but when we're involved in planning, so where we're setting people's wills up, I, I don't typically recommend to people to establish a fee upfront that an executor can claim. And the reason that I, I wouldn't typically recommend someone do that on the, on the front end is because it can be, you never know what the circumstances are going to be for the executor. So you don't know how complex it's going to be or if there's going to be issues that have to be dealt with. And if you, if you fix a fee, then the executor, I mean, if it's too low and, and it turns out to be too complicated, then it, it could deter the executor from acting. So they may decide, I, I don't want to act for this fee, so I'm just going to you know, uh, renounce and, and leave it for someone else to deal with. Uh, or if it's uh, if it's too low, then um, then the exec or sorry if it's too high, then you know and it ended up being pretty simple. Then the executors uh, receive more than they should. So uh, my my preference, I mean, you might get different people will get different advice from different lawyers on this, but my pr preference is to to leave it open for an executor to determine what to claim. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you've got the the statutory limitation, which is the five percent. Yeah. One other maybe quick uh, executor question is about, can you have multiple executors? Can like if the person has two children, can they both be executors or is it better to have one? 
you can certainly have two executors and uh, you could, and, and, and we certainly see that. So, so people will often have two, two executors appointed. Uh, the, the, some of the challenges with that are that both executors need to agree and sign off on everything. So logistically, it can be a little bit more difficult because they, they both need to be present and, and uh, attending meetings and signing and going to the banks and, and doing everything that they need to do. It can be easier for just one person to do that, but there are circumstances where it makes sense to have two act. Uh, more than two, you can actually have more than two, but then it gets really complicated. Now you've got three or four people all needing to uh, to sign off and it just really drags out the process. And, and if there is disagreement, then it can cause issues as well. So if, if you have two or more executors and they're, they're in a disagreement, now you've got a deadlock and, and the estate's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, one other little executor question, then we'll move on to taxes and other such things. Um, do you observe most executors to be family members? Uh, yes. So I, we do. So I think that the, the majority that I see are, um, are the kids. So if, if, if people have kids, then their kids are typically appointed. Uh, and what, for people that don't have kids, uh, sometimes we see siblings or, or nieces or nephews acting. Um, sometimes we see professionals acting. So often uh, you know, people will appoint trust companies to, to carry on the job because it is a really big job and it's, it's becoming more and more um, complex and people don't really want to put that burden on, uh, on a family member that's really outside of their own children. And in those circumstances, we find that more and more people are, are appointing uh, pro professional trust companies to, to take on these roles. Great, thank you. Okay, so, uh, so, so into the taxes, we, we talked about capital gains. In addition, we're always looking at probate fees and, and having that discussion when, when setting up estate plans to, to make sure that the estate's gonna be as efficient as possible from a probate planning perspective. Um, we're gonna talk more about probate a little bit later on, but, uh, but for, for now, probate fees are, uh, so the, the capital gains is a federal tax. Uh, probate fees is a provincial tax, uh, which is calculated at around 1.4% of the value of the estate. So a million dollar estate would be 14 grand in probate fees or two million would be uh, 28 grand in probate fees. So it's a, it's a small tax in the greater scheme, but it's a tax that uh, really goes up uh, depending on the value of the estate. You know, if you have a $5 million estate, then now you're, now you're looking at 70 to 80 grand in probate fees. And so as the, that number rises, then the, you know, the, the, uh, the value of probate planning rises with it to, to, to get around that tax and, and uh, set things up to, uh, um, to limit tax ex exposure there. So, and then uh, outside of probate and capital gains, we've got uh, just regular income taxes. So, so people that have income for the year that, uh, that they pass, there's, you know, there'll be the, just their regular income tax, um, you know, through employment, CPP, OAS, and investments. Um, in addition to that, there can be certain uh, deemed income. So things like RSPs, RIFs, um, locked in, I think they're called locked income funds and, lock, and uh, locked income retirement accounts, I think they are. So there's a bunch of accounts like that that are really taxable accounts. And uh, so how those work really is, that, you know, while, while alive, you can draw money out and, and the money that you draw out is, is uh, deemed as income for, for that tax year. And, and, but then on death, whatever is left in that account is, is treated as income. And so if you have a 500 grand in your, in your RSPs um, and that person passes away, then now that 500 grand is added to that person's income, which would be reported on their terminal tax return and, and uh, which would be filed by the executor and, and paid out of the estate. 
And so for 500 grand, there could be a lot of that might be taxed at the highest marginal tax rate, which would be around 50%. And so it's, so that's something that we're looking at for planning and just to, 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 uh, to try to minimize um, tax exposure and uh, uh, there. Um, Michael, I had another um, question come up about capital gains. Um, yeah. Which is about what, um, what, when is the capital gains determined from what date? So this person asked about, is it from the date of her marriage, the date of the death of her spouse? When does that clock start ticking for her own estate? Okay, so that's, uh, so it's a good question. And it's, it, it kind of, so yeah, um, it's, it's, there's not a, a, a super clear answer to it, but the, the very, at a basic level, the, um, the starting point would be once you have an interest in, it, in that asset. So if you buy a property, let's say you buy an investment property, um, then, and you buy it for a million dollars, then that's the starting point is you own this property, it's worth a million dollars. And then uh, now going forward, uh, the, 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 the capital gains would be, can be triggered in a, a number of different ways. So number one is it could be triggered on a sale of, of that asset. So if you sell the property, then any growth from that, from the date of purchase to the date of sale would be um, uh, triggered. Um, another way would be if, if that property is gifted to, to someone that is not a spouse. So to kids, if, if it's a recreational property and it's being gifted down to, to the kids, um, or to anyone for that matter that's not a spouse, then, then that would also be a disposition and the capital gains would be triggered and, and would have to be paid on, that, on the next tax filing. Um, and then of course, the one that I mentioned, which is uh, in the event of, of death. So uh, and, and on death, um, it's an automatic disposition and, and the capital gain is due. Now, for spouses, we have uh, in, in Canada, spousal rollovers that can apply. So you can, you can move assets between spouses on a rollover basis, basis which means that the asset uh, does not, there's no tax triggered. It's, it's, there's a, a deferral that, that applies. And, um, and so it just defers to, to uh, you know, between spouses. So if you, if you own, if a spouse owns an asset and then they, and then they die, uh, and then it goes to the surviving spouse, the taxes are deferred, the asset goes to the surviving spouse, and now um, the surviving spouse, uh, the, the capital gains will be accruing uh, for the sp surviving spouse going forward. And it's accruing from the initial purchase price that the, the, the first spouse had. So it doesn't reset based on uh, the new value as of that date. They receive, they assume the capital Oops, I'm afraid Michael's a little bit frozen. I'll give it just a moment to catch up. Gained. There you are. You froze for a moment, but you're back. Yeah, I noticed that. How, how long was I frozen there? <laughs> did, uh, but, did, did people hear what I just said or was the whole thing frozen out? You were saying that uh, it, it, it doesn't start over for, you know, that, that the, the rollover happens and, and the spouse basically, it sounded like you were saying this, the spouse has uh, the, um, the capital gains obligation of what their deceased spouse left from that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, so that's another kind of related question here about what if there was a divorce? Um, is there a capital gains concern? 
So similar to so with spousal, similar to kind of the spousal rollover in the event of a divorce, their CRA will recognize you know as you kind of go navigate that process of of going through a separation, then uh, you know assets that have appreciated value will can um, depending on who's ultimately going to receive that asset. So if, if there's a family you know family home is not a good example, but if there's a a recreational property and and one spouse is going to be receiving that asset, uh, then it can go to that spouse on a tax deferred basis. So there's, there wouldn't be any taxes triggered unless the asset is sold. So if the asset is sold, then it's then there, there, that, there's a, a different triggering of the capital gain and, and that, that tax would be uh, uh, due and payable. Okay. Um, and then finally, one other related question. If you don't have a spouse, will the capital gains obligation roll over to a child? So uh, not, for the most part, the answer is no. So the, uh, there's no rollover to a, uh, of capital gains to kids. There's only rollovers to spouses. So if, if you're passing an asset to a, to a child, then you'll, you will pay that capital gain so that it's triggered for you, for you and, uh, and will be reported and, and declared on your tax return and paid out of um, your funds. Great. So there are, um, to kids, I mean, if we're getting, I, I wasn't planning to get into too much detail about this, but there are certain exceptions to that rule. So for, for uh, farmland, for example, so if you have a farming business, then, uh, then uh, farming businesses can be rolled down to kids on, on tax deferred basis. Um, uh, it can also be done for disabled children. So if, if someone has a disabled child uh, and they have an RDSP set up, then, then uh, certain assets can be moved into the RDSP on a, on a rollover basis. How are we doing? Good questions. I'm glad it sounds like people are, are engaged, which is well, it's great. Yeah, no, but go ahead and uh, continue on. Okay. Um, I don't realize I don't have a clock. So if, if I'm starting to um, go too long, let me know and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start to, I'll skip things or speed up. There's a lot of material. I'm trying to just touch on things fairly generally. And, and uh, I mean, a lot of these things I could talk, I could do, you know, hours on. Uh, so I'm trying to just to, to speak generally about a lot and, and, uh, and and uh, and go from there. So we talked about executors. We talked about taxes. Um, also, when doing wills, of course, we have to consider who are the beneficiaries going to be, and how do you want to do the division. And uh, and when we're looking at that, uh, when people have kids uh, or spouses, uh, we have to be mindful of in BC we have wills variation, which is effectively means that if a if a child or a spouse feels that they've been inadequately provided for through the will then that person can apply to the court to um, uh, seek the, to have the will varied to, to give them a bigger share. And so a judge would review the situation and determine if it's, uh, if it's appropriate to vary the will to give that child a, a larger share. So that comes up where people are, are looking to, to do an unequal division of their estate between their kids for, for whatever reason. There can be a number of reasons why people might do that. And, and, but when they're doing that, we're always looking at wills variation and considering is this wills variation, is it, is it going to be a real risk? And if it is, then perhaps we should look at some uh, um, planning to, to uh, limit that risk. And uh, the other situation where it comes up is, is in blended families. And so what I mean by a blended family is uh, where people have a second spouse or a third spouse where they have kids from a previous relationship. So that, that wills variation is, is only really applicable for 
uh, for biological and adopted children. It doesn't also apply for stepchildren. So where, where people are in a new relationship uh, and they're starting to uh, accumulate assets together with their new spouse and they're taking ownership of those assets as joint owners um, or they're naming each other on as beneficiaries of, of things like RSPs or RIFs or life insurance, uh, then those assets will just go directly to the surviving spouse on death. So we'll talk more about joint tenancy, but effectively when you own things jointly, then that asset that, that is owned jointly would, would on death of one will just roll to the survivor through a true, through a right of survivorship. And uh, now the effect of that is those assets then would not go through the estate. They just go to the surviving spouse. And so if that person, that deceased person has kids from a previous relationship, the surviving spouse has now uh, received the assets outside of the will. The kids could make a wills variation claim, but there's no assets really to vary because they're, they're, the, those assets aren't part of the will. And now the, the kids have effectively been disinherited uh, because they can't make a wills variation claim on that surviving spouse going forward because there's no, uh, that right doesn't extend to stepchildren. So that's something that we're looking at. And, and, uh, and in those circumstances, you know, there, there's a lot of planning that needs to be done to ensure that um, everything is going to go the way that um, the will maker wants things to go. And, and uh, oftentimes it's just a, a look at the assets to determine, you know, what's there and, and, uh, and how, what's the appropriate split between the spouse and, and the kids. Um, if, uh, if the assets are, are for the most part tied up, then, um, uh, then perhaps we'd look at things like spousal trusts and, and move and for that person to, instead of having things go directly to, to spouse, to the surviving spouse, have it held in a trust for them, for their benefit, uh, and then ultimately pass to the kids on, on this, that spouse's, surviving spouse's passing. Uh, some people set up life insurance policies. So, so um, if, they, if they want most of their assets to go to their surviving spouse, but they want to provide to their kids as well, and they don't want to leave their kids high and dry, then uh, they, you know, people will set up life insurance policies and have the insurance policies go to the kids and as, a, as a way of kind of balancing, balancing things uh, for everybody. So um, the other situation that uh, we need to be mindful of is if, if people have beneficiaries who have disability status. So where, where people have, where, where if, if someone has a, a disability status and receives disability benefits from the, the province uh, or the federal government, then uh, we want to, to avoid having them receive an inheritance outright because that inheritance will disqualify them from receiving those benefits going forward. And so instead, we have that inheritance go through a discretionary trust. And, uh, and, and that will allow the, the beneficiary, the disabled beneficiary, to get the benefit of a certain uh, level of income through that, the trust and while also maintaining their uh, disability benefits. And then uh, and the, only, the other thing that comes up uh, pretty much every, every planning session that I, I run through with clients is charitable giving. And here we are talking you know, with with temple shalom and and so it's a, it's very common for people to to donate to charities and and temple shalom would be one and and uh, people do that for for different reasons so some people do it for philanthropic reasons and some people do it for tax planning uh, so giving to charity of course you, you get a donation receipt which can be offset with the with taxes and um, and we we talked about all the taxes that can be triggered on death so it is something that often comes up as as a means of of limiting tax exposure on death by by giving to, to charity to create an offset. 
Okay, so moving on, um, I'll talk to you about probate. Uh, we've touched on it a little bit. <clears throat> so probate, I'm sure many of you have probably had to deal with probate before in one way or the other, but uh, I'll speak uh, um, generally about it. What it is really is it's an application, a court application that an executor uh, has to make or an administrator if, if there's no will um, to, to seek uh, the, uh, court certification that the will is a valid will and that the executor is the appropriate person to act. And uh, probate is not always required. So it's only required if there's someone out there that requires the executor to probate the will. And so the, the common examples are if, if, if the deceased person owns real estate in BC, then uh, the land title office will require the executor to obtain probate every time uh, before they'd be willing to um, uh, release title to the executor in order to deal with the property. Um, another example would be you know, bank accounts. So if, if um, typically the banks will will allow an executor uh, access and control over bank accounts if they're lower values, so say under 20 grand or so, um, although that's a, it's a policy thing with the bank, so it's not, don't quote me on the under 20 grand, I'm just kind of using that as an example. Uh, because the lower amounts is just lower risk for the bank. So if, if they look at the situation and it's pretty low risk, there's a will, this is the person that's appointed as executor, they may be willing just to release those funds. But if there's more money in the, in the accounts, then the risk of course goes up for the banks and, and then they're more likely to require probate. So upwards of 40, 50 grand and beyond, uh, they may well require that the executor uh, go through probate. Now in going through probate, the executor has to declare, well, first has to determine what the assets are of the, that form part of the estate, and then has to declare those assets along with the values as of the person's date of death. And, and the overall value of the estate is what's subject to probate fees. So that, that's the amount that's subject to that 1.4% provincial tax. Now, if there's no will, I think I touched on it a little bit, but if there's no will, then of course, nobody has any immediate authority to do anything. There's nobody that's been appointed as executor. Um, so somebody from, from the family would need to step up and apply to the court to receive a what's called a grant of administration. So it's very similar to a grant of probate, which is uh, what an executor goes through in proving a will. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's a grant of administration, and, but the same, all the same protocols apply. So it's a, all the same checks and balances um, in terms of confirming for the court that it's a valid will and, and, uh, and, and same de uh, disclosure of all the assets and, and same probate fees and everything. Uh, one probate question came uh, in to us um, about the situation if someone dies outside of BC, which jurisdiction controls the probate? Uh, it's a good question. Um, so it, it's, uh, there's not, I guess, how do I put this? So you would do, it, there's not really a, a control element to it so much as it depends really where the assets are. So it, it would be, if someone, let's say a common situation that we see are people that uh, um, you know, live in Alberta and have assets in BC or vice versa. And uh, so if somebody lives in Alberta, but they own a piece of real estate in BC, then they may have to go through probate in Alberta to, if they're, uh, to deal with the, any assets that are in Alberta. And then what they do is they take that 
that grant of probate they received from Alberta, and they would have to have it resealed in BC in order to deal with the, the property here. So there, there may be one will, it goes through probate in one particular jurisdiction, whichever is, I mean, um, uh, you know, the most appropriate to, to deal with first, which is typically the jurisdiction in which the deceased uh, was domiciled. And, and, then, um, and then that grant needs to be resealed accordingly in any other jurisdiction uh, where there are assets that need to be administered. Okay, thank you. So we've talked about probate, we talked about probate fees. Um, now, in, ter in terms of how do we get around that uh, probate fee? What, what do we do to, to bypass some of, that, some of our taxes? Uh, there are a number of different ways that you can limit exposure to probate and probate fees, uh, all of which need to be done with great caution. Uh, there are uh, uh, any, any steps taken to bypass probate can cause, you know, although you may have avoided the 1.4% tax, you may have created other issues in its place. And so certainly I would, if, if, if looking to take steps to bypass probate, I would seek professional assistance and make sure that you're, um, you're, getting, you're, you're getting informed advice and, and making an informed decision uh, before proceeding. Uh, now, having said that, uh, one thing, one mechanism that we use uh, pretty commonly to, to get around probate are use of trusts. So, it, so stepping back for a second, probate applies to assets that form part of the estate. So anything that you own personally uh, that goes through your estate is subject to probate and probate fees and is also for that matter subject to wills variation because it goes through your will. So uh, any variation of the will is, is going to impact the division of, of those assets that form part of your estate. Now, if you move assets outside of your estate and into a, a separate uh, entity, then th that asset now no longer forms part of your estate and is not subject to probate or probate fees. And, and so that's where the trusts come in. Where people have um, assets that have value that um, where the probate fees are going to be high, uh, then they may consider setting up something like an alter ego or a joint partner trust. Uh, and then once that trust is set up, they can take their certain assets and move them from their personal ownership into the trust. And, and, and once in the trust, the trust could be can be set up in a way where the person maintains full control as trustee of the trust and they would also be the primary beneficiary during their lifetime and then they could they could establish provision in terms of what happens with those assets on death so similar to a will so you can really put all that language within a trust and, and have your assets administered through the trust rather than through your estate the catch with these uh, alter ego and joint partner trusts is that uh, the individual or individuals for that matter, if it's, if it's a couple, um, they need to be over 65 to do it. And there's sp special tax treatment for these trusts. So we, we've talked about capital gains in particular um, and how it can be triggered. So on, on a, a transfer, a disposition of the asset, um, capital gains would be triggered. Uh, but for these types of trusts, the assets can be transferred to the trust on a tax deferred basis. So it, it and, and so the asset gets moved into the trust, no tax is triggered, they're deferred and then would still just be um, uh, triggered on a sale or on, on death. So once you've moved assets into the trust, those assets have effectively bypassed probate and probate fees and, and have also bypassed 
um, any risk of wills variation. So those are the common reasons we see people set these up is to, if, if they have high, high value assets that um, are, are, can be moved into something like a, a trust and um, to, to get around the probate and, and also to, uh, if, there's, if, um, if there's any risk of wills variation, then uh, they've got that tool available. The, one of, some of the downsides with these types of trusts are that they're expensive to set up. So it could be anywhere from five to 10 grand uh, to set up a trust like this. And uh, it, can be, it can be more if it's more comprehensive or more complex. And so you really need to balance the cost with the, uh, the benefits. And so if they're, you know, if you've got $5 million in assets and where the probate fees are going to be 70 to 80 grand and it's only going to cost 10 grand to, to set it up, then um, that, that's good value. Um, but if you if there's a million dollars that you can move into the trust where you're saving you're paying 10 grand and, and ultimately just saving 14 uh, then that's not as good value and, uh, and may not be appropriate unless there's a high risk of wills variation then maybe it would still make sense to do it um, I, I have a note here about family trusts but the, the, sorry go ahead oh just the question that just came in about trusts is are there ongoing fees with trusts so yes, so there's there aren't typically ongoing legal fees. So the legal fees would typically just be on the setup, uh, but there are ongoing accounting fees. So there's a, a, a it's a separate entity, a trust. So it has to file annual tax returns, uh, and uh, and so there'd be accounting fees for that. So it could be a thousand bucks a year or fifteen hundred bucks a year to to deal with the tax filings. Okay, and one other question that just came in. Um is can a joint asset like a bank account with the right of survivorship avoid probate in their fees so the answer is yes so owning an asset as a um so if you if you put um actually you know what we're just about to get into that so that's next that's next talk i think that's actually the very next slide good I was i'm not going to talk too much about family trusts is there anybody else, any other questions? Uh, uh, I think we can move on from there. And just to give you, we've got about 15 minutes left in the... Uh... Okay, we're getting there. So I, I'm gonna skip family trust, but it's just another way that people uh, people can use family trust. People will use family trust when they have business assets or, or companies um, and they can roll their shares into a family trust. And that's another way of uh, getting around probate. Okay, so right on uh, with the, the, that question. So the, the other way to get around probate is the use of joint uh, ownership or joint tenancy. Um, people will off, spouses use this all the time and I, I would typically recommend to spouses to use this, especially if it's not a, a blended family. Uh, if it's the, you know, spouses that have the same kids, uh, then um, you know, owning, for example, your, your residence uh, as joint tenants, the effect of that would be that if one of them dies, the property will automatically transfer to the survivor um, through right of survivorship outside of the estate and outside of the will. And then on that survivor's death, then the property goes through probate and, and goes through the estate. Same thing for bank accounts, investment accounts, owning them jointly will allow them to pass to the surviving joint owner. Now, it gets more complicated when considering adding, um, you know, rather than just for spouses, adding kids on as joint account holders uh, or joint tenants to property. It's, it's a question that comes up very regularly. Uh, and um, there are rare circumstances where it makes sense to do it, but some of the challenges are, I'll, I'll give you kind of an example scenario. So if you've got someone, uh, if, if you have, um, so parent has you know, a, a couple of kids, they wanna put uh, one of the kids on title, as a joint owner, because they were told that it would make sense to, it will bypass probate. 
then that may well be, but effectively that's your principal residence, the parent's principal residence. So um, as a principal residence, it's exempt from capital gains tax. And now the child who has been put on the ownership that now has an interest in the property, it may not be that child's principal residence. So, so now for that interest, uh, there'll be capital gains that will begin to accrue, which is a bad result when it would otherwise be exempt uh, for the whole property. Um, more, so there's uh, that child, if they have a spouse and then, uh, and then they subsequently split up, that interest in the property that they have may be subject to matrimonial claims or an interest or certainly part of the growth of it. Uh, so that's another reason or a thing that we're looking at. Um, and, and also that child, if they, if they run their own business or they get sued um, and uh, there's a judgment against them, then that creditor may search title to find that per that child has an interest in a property and register that judgment against the title. And, and uh, now you, now that property is encumbered. And so you've lost some control over what you can do with it. So the, these are things that we're looking at when, when putting um, kids on title. So there, in certain circumstances, it might make sense. If, the, if you have one child and they live in the property with you and um, so it's both of your principal residence and, and the person has a low risk job where they're not likely to get sued, uh, then, and then maybe it would make sense to add them as a joint tenant rather than paying all the cost to set up something like an uh, alter ego or a joint partner trust. Um, I, I won't talk too much about resulting trust, but effectively I will say, um, so when putting a child on as a joint owner to any asset, that parent-child relationship, it's actually presumed when the parent dies that uh, the, the asset that is now in the hands of the child is held by the, that child in trust for the estate unless there's a contrary intention that says that it was intended to be a true right of survivorship. So we have to be mindful of that as well. Um, and when, when we're having these conversations with clients, we're always making sure to document if there are joint assets, we want to document them cleanly to ensure that it's very clear what the intentions were of, of the parent in that circumstance. So, um, so joint ownership is one, it, it, it is a tool that can be used, it's most commonly used with spouses for it to get around probate. Lifetime gifts, so you can always give things away during lifetime, uh, that would bypass probate because now you've given up your assets where you, that you don't own them anymore and you have to be mindful of your needs. Um, you also have to be mindful of um, same things as we talked about with joint ownership, things like creditor claims and matrimonial claims, because if you're gifting assets, uh, then um, any growth, on, they, they may be intermingled into family assets with their spouse. And then on a subsequent breakup, it, it can be difficult to, uh, to claw that back and, and, uh, and to ensure that your child is the one that receives that. But there are ways to deal with that. Um, and uh, normally we set these up as loans rather than gifts, which are just repaid repayable on demand and, and uh, there are different ways to do it and gifts are actually protected on, in matrimonial circumstances as well but it's really just the growth that's subject to claims or if they get intermingled in other assets where it gets tricky. Uh, the other common uh, tool to bypass probate is use of uh, beneficial designations so things like RSPs, TFSAs, life insurance, you can name uh, people direct as direct beneficiaries on those accounts so then those accounts would go directly to those individuals and we have to be mindful of the taxes. We talked about the high income tax applicable in particular to RSPs and RIFs. If there's a lot of money in there, then what happens is if you have 500 grand in a, in a RIF and you name one of your kids as a beneficiary, then that 500 grand on death would go to that child. But the income taxes that are owing as a result of those funds uh, are still owing by your estate. So that two, say 200 grand or so in income tax that's applicable to those funds 
needs to be paid by your estate. So they, they, you need to ensure that there'd be money still within your estate to cover that uh, tax liability so that your executor has some access to funds to, to do that. One uh, just quick question, Michael, that came up about uh, joint is, uh, I guess, a terminology question. Is joint tenancy the same as joint ownership or is there a distinction there? It's really the same. So it, it's the same. We call it, it's called joint tenancy. Legally, it's called joint tenancy. Uh, but uh, but people use the word joint for ownership of we say joint tenancy for real estate in particular. Uh, but uh, you know bank accounts they don't typically name you as a joint tenant on a bank account. You're just called a joint account holder. But it's effectively the same thing for legal purposes. The same rules apply with the right of survivorship and the, the resulting trust if uh, if it's a kid on there. Any other questions before I move on to? Uh, to powers of attorney, we're, we're getting close. I think we're going to make it in time. I think, uh, I think, yeah, keep going, keep going. Okay. So we talked about wills, trusts, probate planning. That's really, those are really things that um, are, are more, you know, in the event of death uh, planning. Uh, now these powers of attorney and representation agreements are really more in, uh, while I'm alive, here's who I want to appoint as the, the person to manage my financial affairs. So that would be a power of attorney. And here's who I want to appoint as the person to manage my health care and uh, uh, decision making, which is a, a representative under a representation agreement. So for powers of attorney, you got to consider who is appropriate to act as attorney. Um, do you have kids or a spouse that it would be appropriate? Or if not, do you have nieces, nephews, siblings? Um, if not, then you may look to trust companies to, to act in these roles. There are different ways to set these up. So you could do an enduring power of attorney, which would be, it would really, it would be effective immediately. So while you're capable, and then it would continue to apply if you ever became incapable. That's the most common way that we see these set up. There are often um, uh, situations that come up where you may be capable and and, uh, and it may be good to, to have a power of attorney that has authority for you. Uh, for example, people that are retired and travel uh, regularly, they may want to have someone that has authority, even though they're capable, they have someone in, in town that has the proper authority to deal with uh, their affairs and uh, can go and sign things with the bank or otherwise. And a springing power of attorney is really, it, um, it springs into effect upon incapacity or a, another triggering event. The common one is incapacity. So in that circumstance, you can, you'd set it up today, uh, but then it's not effective unless you become incapable. And, and that's uh, determined typically through a, a, an assessment by a physician confirming that the person is not of sound mind. So a power of attorney, is, the person acting as attorney would, in terms of their duties, so they would um, you know, manage all your financial affairs, make sure your investments are in order, um, deal with your taxes, make, uh, make sure your taxes are filed and paid, um, deal with your bills, anything financial related, they're doing that. Um, there are some limitations. So a, a power of attorney cannot gift or make loans. They can, but it's uh, the, the limit uh, in our legislation is about five grand a year. So that can be a pretty low amount. So if uh, this is something that comes up in planning, so when I'm talking to clients about powers of attorney, I'm getting a feel for, okay, or, or do they donate, for example, regularly to charity? Is, do they make annual donations? If so, how much? And if that amount is over the, that five grand limit, perhaps we should... Um, include some language uh, within the power of attorney document to ensure that the attorney has the proper authority to continue with those donations annually, um, even in the event of the, that person's incapacity. Um, so an executor, 
doesn't typically get paid to do the job unless you expressly state that they can in the power of attorney document. So if you, um, when it's a family member or a non-professional, typically executors don't get paid. Uh, where it's a professional acting like a trust company, for example, and then they, they'll have a fee agreement and they'll be paid. And, and uh, typically they have a percentage of, of that they would charge, which is might be around one to 2% of the value of the estate per year for kind of carrying out the role. Uh, now, um, what if you uh, lose capacity before putting in place a power of attorney document? In that circumstance, if you don't have, a, if you become incapable and, and you've, you don't have a power of attorney in place, then unfortunately you now cannot put a power of attorney in place because you, you, you need to be of sound mind to do so. So somebody within the family would need to step up and apply to the court to become appointed as the adult guardian, so to speak. It's called comiteeship. And it's a, it's a complicated court application. The public guardian and trustee gets involved and needs to, to sign off effectively on the person applying. And, uh, and the person in question needs to be assessed by two different physicians and uh, confirmed to be incapable. And so it's, it's really a, um, it's a public process and, uh, um, and it can be a little bit ugly because it, it uh, formally declares the person to be incompetent, which a lot of people um, don't, don't wanna do for their, for their loved ones. Okay, so we talked about, uh, so, so representation agreements, I mentioned it's really a healthcare document appointing uh, someone to make healthcare decisions. Uh, again, you got to choose who's the appropriate person to act to make these decisions. These documents ha often have lots of language to them about um, you know, life support and how you, you know, um, pulling the plug, so to speak. And there are different types. So we've got a section seven versus a section nine. Those are just the sections within the Representation Agreement Act that kind of give different options for, for the setup of a representation agreement. A, a section nine representation agreement is really a full-fledged uh, um, document which gives your representative full authority to do anything um, healthcare medical related for you. And it's something that you, you need to be of sound mind, uh, have full capacity to enter into. A section seven representation agreement is, is one that is in place to allow people that have diminished or limited capacity to, to still be able to, to appoint someone as a healthcare representative, um, uh, but uh, there's different rules that apply for that, the, the representative acting. And uh, yeah, so it's very rare that a representative dealing with healthcare uh, would be paid to, to take on the role. I've seen it one time in, in my career. Um, so it, it's, it's, it doesn't happen very often, but they, they can be paid. So the legislation does have some provision for a representative to be compensated, but it's not normal. Uh, only in certain circumstances would it come up. Similar to the power of attorney, if you don't have one of these documents in place and, uh, and then become incapable, then uh, somebody needs to apply to the court to be appointed through comiteeship to, to make those decisions. And it's a, the same application um, as uh, with the appointing someone on the financial side. So typically it's something that gets done, uh, if, you know, if someone is, doesn't have a, rep, a power of attorney or a representation agreement, then they would do that comiteeship application for both roles in one, on one go. Great. Um, I'm just noticing uh, we have a few minutes left and a few questions that have come in. Um, would you like me to ask them now or do you want to sure. kind of, uh, finish off your presentation either way, either order? I, I, if you don't mind. Um, 
So two questions that are related that have come in are about um, basically kind of the fees and expenses to setting up all of these wills and powers of, powers of attorney, et cetera. Um, one was about, um, you know, a situation where they've had a will set up, but, you know, back from maybe 10, 15 years ago, but now their children have children and they need to update addresses and beneficiaries and things like that. So what's kind of the least expensive way to do those changes? Um, and then the other is about just setting these things up from the beginning. Um, you know, that, that they involve a lot of legal fees and um, what's the best way for people who are on a fixed income, for example, to, uh, to, to make sure that they have these things in place. Um, okay, so they, for the first part, you know, the, the, the most cost effective way to deal with changes to, to wills and, uh, and an estate plan would be just to, to go back to, um, you know, the professional advisor that uh, you worked with initially because they would have your documents and, and uh, if it could be that it's just a simple change where they can take the document and just make the simple change and get you to resign. Um, and they would, they may not charge you, you know, full cost to, to redo kind of to, to redo your wills altogether. And um, now if you don't have documents in place and you're really just doing this for the first time, I mean, notaries do this type of work. It's uh, there's, they have limitations in terms of what they can do. So they would charge less notaries, uh, but they are limited in, ter in terms of what they can do. So notaries can't do trusts for the most part, they can't provide legal advice. Um, really all they, I think what they can do is just give you some general advice and, and, uh, and give you kind of a, a very basic, um, straightforward, um, couple page will and powers of attorney and representation agreements. Uh, if you, now what, what we, what I can say is what I see a lot is, you know, people may have, have wills from 20 years ago where it may be that there's only a couple little things that need to be changed. Um, but because the laws and the tax rules have changed so much in the last 10 to 20 years, and uh, there can be other things, just general things that need to be added or, or changed within the will. Uh, so, so it could be that, you know, for, for older wills, you may need, want to do a, a full overhaul anyways, to, to just bring it up to date with our current rules and, and regulations. And same goes for powers of attorney and representation agreements as well. And then you, you had another, so that was one. And, um, there's another question yeah, kind one of other, one other question um, that, that came in, uh, which is asking if you have any thoughts about um, what changes to the tax code the government might be making with kind of the added expenses due to COVID and, and the different programs, um, thinking about estate taxes, inheritance tax, things like that. Oh, I, I have no idea. So I, what I can say is I haven't heard anything. So our, our, um, our estates and trust group are, are very active and there's a couple of people in our office in particular who are very involved with uh, legislative change. And so I, I get to hear it uh, on a weekly basis in terms of what's going on. And I, I haven't heard any, any rumors that um, they're going to up any of, any of these taxes. I mean, there have been room, um, uh, um, the federal government in their uh, annual budget have you know a couple of times raised the idea of um, increasing capital gains tax uh, but then have not gone through with it so those things come up from time to time and then what happens for me is i get a, a, a whole bunch of phone calls from people saying that they want to trigger their their capital gains now so that they pay it at a lower amount and then all of a sudden 
Uh, and then we talk to them about it, and and uh, but then all of a sudden, uh, you know, the, the government doesn't go through with the change, and so then everybody backs off. So those things happen, but I don't know. I haven't heard any rumors that probate fees are going up. I haven't, I haven't heard anything like that. So I, I think for as far as we know, the rules are the way that they are, and and uh, they'll maintain um, how they are right for now. Fantastic. Well, Michael, you gave us so much information in uh, such a <laughs> short period of time. I really am. Yeah. <laughs> Just in awe and uh, and grateful to you for uh, for all of that insight. Um, I don't know if you have a, a last word or anything you want to uh, conclude with. Uh, well, yeah, that was. I mean, I, I I'm actually surprised that we got through that in an hour. That's great. And um, if people have questions that they they don't want to raise here, you're welcome to email me or call me. Um, I'm happy to chat with you if if you have specific questions of things that have come up, and I'll, I'll try to guide you. Um, as best I can and, and answer as best I can. Um, and uh, I think that's really it. I mean, yes, it was a, there was a, that was a broad kind of presentation um, on a number of topics and, and uh, really just touching very generally on a lot of those. But uh, so keep that in mind. And, and uh, if, but if, and if you want more information, then I mean, certainly I would I recommend talking to your professional advisors or you're welcome to call me and I'm happy to have a chat with you as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you to Nicole and Mariel behind the scenes for making all of this happen. Um, just a reminder, this uh, series that we've been doing uh, over the past few weeks, uh, we have one more coming up uh, this week, uh, just on Friday. We're uh, looking forward to uh, hearing from Jody Wilson-Raybould about our federal government's response to COVID-19. Uh, so that will be on Friday at 1. There's more information at the Temple Shalom website uh, and to register for the link to, uh, to learn more. So thank you, everyone. Stay safe, and uh, we'll see you soon. Take care. Bye.